Placemakers is made possible by J.P. Morgan Chase. J.P. Morgan Chase is committed to expanding access to opportunity for all people and advancing economic growth in all places. Learn more about their global commitment by going to jpmorganchase.com. In the 1970s, Chicago was a rough place, to say the least. In the year 1974 alone, the city racked up a whopping 970 murders. At the time, that meant 30.6 murders for every 100,000 residents. Someone who came out of that rough world of 1970s Chicago is Benny Lee. In his youth, Benny was a gang chief with the Apache Vice Lords on the city's west side. Mostly that meant running drugs and stealing things. One day in 1975, Benny and his crew had a new idea, to steal the same goods twice. They'd already swiped some CB radios from a store, remember CB radios, and sold them to a fence. That's someone who resells stuff and gives gang members a cut. And Benny decided he was going to rob the CBs back from the fence. And so when he opened the door, we just bum-rushed him and went in the house. While we was in there, you know, we looking for money and all this stuff. Then a friend of mine that was with me, he said, hey, the police outside. They pulled me out. And they beat us. I had a permanent hairdo. They beat the perm out of my head. You know, I had about 27 stitches. Benny Lee was arrested, charged, and convicted of armed robbery, burglary, and unlawful use of a weapon. The whole thing would spark a chain of events that eventually put him on Illinois' death row. And if you talk with Benny today... He'll tell you he had no idea how his attempted robbery would change his life forever. I'm Rebecca Sheeran from Slate Magazine. This is Placemakers, stories about the spaces we inhabit and the people who shape them. If you fast forward 40 years from the 1970s Chicago of Benny Lee's youth, you'll see that the city's murder rate has gone down. It started abating in the 1990s. But Chicago still has one of the highest homicide rates in the United States. Last year, in 2015, 488 people were murdered there. And as for this year, at the time of this podcast, Chicago's homicides have already topped 500 The Chicago Police Department's latest numbers reveal a bleak start to 2016. It is a sad milestone, more than 500 killed. That's the gruesome milestone Chicago residents are waking up to this morning. 2016 has been the deadliest year for the city of Chicago in two decades. Chicago sees thousands of arrests and convictions each year. It also sees thousands of people released from prison after doing their time. But close to half of these ex-convicts are back behind bars within three years of their initial release. And this revolving door of prison time and crime is a huge problem for communities trying to wrench themselves out of poverty. Benny Lee, though, he's not daunted by the statistics. He's an ex-convict who beat the rap and in the process discovered what he thinks is the answer to his hometown's high recidivism rate. And as producer John Owens tells us, Benny's is one of the few approaches that seems to be working. This is Benny Lee now. He's a trim, bearded African-American man in a storefront room in the Austin neighborhood of Chicago's Far West Side. Lee grew up here when this was a mostly white neighborhood. These days, it's almost entirely black and low income. And it has some of the highest rates of crime in the city. We strive for unity in our families, community, and nation. Lee's a drug counselor, but on Saturdays, he leads what he calls re-entry circles for the formerly incarcerated. About 20 men and women show up this morning. 
They're all struggling with similar issues now, trying to find someone who'll hire them or rent to them. Everyone understands here how hard it is. I do two temp jobs a week. And uh, I'm getting, like I say, uh, putting this something in the bank, keeping two dollars in my pocket. My confidence is up in this But more than anything, the people here want to hear from Lee. He gives them concrete advice about how to navigate the world they're re-entering at a big disadvantage. You gotta be ready to respond to the moment. Because see, in order for them to do a drug test on you, you gotta sign a consent, consenting that it's okay for them to do that. Lee is a dynamic, experienced speaker. In his other life, he's an educator teaching criminal justice classes at Northeastern Illinois University and Chicago State University. He has his bachelor's and master's degrees in education, but his authority here comes from his time on the inside. Lee has been held behind the locked doors of nearly every corner of the state's huge criminal justice system. He knows how and why the people here might end up back there, despite all their best intentions. If you ask Benny Lee what started him on his path to prison, he won't start with the armed robbery that led to his longest conviction. He starts at Austin High School in the 1960s. His class was among the first to be integrated, and it didn't go well. One day, uh, a race riot broke out. Four white guys tried to come in a classroom on me, and my father, he had taught us how to box at the time. and I was boxing, defending myself, and three of my buddies happened to notice and they joined in. And so as a result, we all got suspended, suspended me and my buddies. Nothing happened to the whites because they felt we was in their school, in their neighborhood, we were the troublemakers. Lee says he was fingered as the leader and he wound up in juvenile court. But my parents didn't realize that they were sending me to the Illinois State Training School for Boys in IYC St. Charles. And I can remember my mother crying in the courtroom, my father feeling hopeless because they didn't know what was going on, ignorant to the procedures. And they didn't, like, fight for me. And so I felt like my parents had abandoned me, had gave me away. Lee says he'd already been recruited by the Apache Vice Lords before being sent away. But now he became actively involved in the group's criminal activities. From 1968 to 1975, he was in and out of prison for various petty crimes. Then after being charged with the armed robbery of the CB radios, he ended up at the Pontiac Correctional Center. Three years later, the prison had a major riot. Then all of a sudden, somebody said, it's going down, right? They hollering all, you can hear them from the outside, from the inside. And they, uh, they don't let them close that door. Next thing I got pushed with the rush to open up the cell house door and we got in. After that commotion was over, I noticed there was a shank straight through my arm. It wound up being one of the worst prison riots in Illinois history. Three correctional officers died. And just as at his high school years before, Benny Lee found himself accused of organizing the violence. He was, after all, still a member of the Vice Lords, and a high-ranking one at that. Lee and the others awaited their trial on death row. But the case of the Pontiac 17, as they were called, became a national cause. 
Advocates said that the men were falsely accused and would never receive a fair trial. Civil rights activist Dick Gregory held fundraisers for their legal defense, and Nation of Islam leader Louis Farrakhan visited them. A trial for 10 of the 17 defendants started in September 1980, but the judge found much of the prosecution's witnesses questionable. Finally, the charges were thrown out and Lee and the others were acquitted in May 1981. Lee was released soon after. He was 27 years old, had never worked a regular job, or even got a driver's license. He soon violated his parole and wound up doing another short stint behind bars. That time would be the last, Lee decided. He had just read the autobiography of Malcolm X, and he says that helped him put his own life in perspective. More importantly, he found a support network on the outside, many of them among the Pontiac 17. I didn't think nobody hired me, but my peers encouraged me, go for it, help me. My biggest battle was uh, the image I had of myself, you know, the messages, because I'm feeling like I'm out here with a shirt and tie on with a resume up on the mom. I feel like I'm easy prey now. Guys look at me like I'm easy prey, I'm a lame, you know, so I'm like, I don't need this here. But where can I go? Back to hustling. for a quick break. When we come back, we'll find out how Benny Lee took what he learned from reentry and started applying it to the world around him. But we'll also hear why you can gain all sorts of skills in prison, useful, practical skills like being a barber, say, but good luck getting a license when you get out. Hey, I'm Brian Babylon. Placemakers is made possible by J.P. Morgan Chase. Economic recovery is no easy task. In many cities, incomes are shrinking and families and communities are struggling. J.P. Morgan Chase is committed to helping solve the problem. J.P. Morgan Chase is deploying $1 billion towards programs focused on expanding access to opportunities and advancing economic growth around the world. In New Orleans, J.P. Morgan Chase is committed to helping reverse decades of economic decline. Greg Rattler is a relationship executive in J.P. Morgan Chase's commercial bank unit and a lifelong resident of New Orleans. He has witnessed massive change in his hometown. Here, Greg talks about one area in particular that J.P. Morgan Chase is helping to revive, O.C. Haley Boulevard. My day job here at J.P. Morgan Chase is to be a commercial banker, but on a personal note, I have very fond memories of the O.C. Haley Central City Quarter. Many of the early memories I have of that part of New Orleans dates back to the, the original Dried's YMCA, where I first learned to swim. That, coupled with the Ashe Cultural Arts Center, Cafe Reconcile, all of these are now iconic organizations and entities that people have come to appreciate for their, I guess, their catalytic impact of the physical recovery of the city, but the human capital and the human aspect of this city's uh, resurgence. J.P. Morgan Chase is focused on helping all communities. Learn more by going to jpmorganchase.com. From Slate Magazine, it's Placemakers. I'm Rebecca Shear. Today we're talking about recidivism and one man's struggle to escape the revolving door of crime and prison time. Benny Lee's time behind bars was nothing short of dramatic. 
He was accused of inciting a riot in which three guards died, and then he faced possible execution, spending three years on death row. Compared with all that, the challenges of life on the outside might not seem as extreme. But Benny says for inmates making the transition back to society, it's all deeply connected. And I just believe that if you really want to look at uh, what caused people to be under a strain to lead back to recidivism or to look at or talk to people that and to learn how people can work through the barriers that former incarcerated convicted people face upon discharge, you need to have some people that have actually experienced that to share their experience and give their insights on what they had to deal with, some of the barriers they faced, how did they overcome those barriers. How did Benny Lee make his own transition? John Owens picks up our story in Chicago. Hello, everybody. My name is Ike Taylor, and I am, it will always be one of the Pontiac brothers. This is an annual meeting of the so-called Pontiac 10, the 10 inmates who face charges together. One of their members, Jesse Hill, died earlier in 2016, so this time they're gathering at a church on Chicago's south side. One of the speakers is Reverend Mary Lucas, who ministered to the Pontiac 10 while they were in prison and kept up with them after they were acquitted. They really came to love each other uh, as heads of all the existing gangs. And there was a oneness that developed. You changed those men. The Pontiac 10 became Benny Lee's own reentry circle. They helped each other adjust to life on the outside and see the connections with life behind bars. We were fighting for better conditions in those prison systems, the same conditions we were faced with in our communities that set it up for us to end up in prison. We ran face to face with those same conditions in the prison system. When Lee got out of prison for the last time in 1984, he was a 30-year-old basically starting his life like a teenager. He'd never finished high school, so he had to get his GED. He also had to break a debilitating heroin habit. He plunged himself into drug counseling and met others going through the same thing. The Gateway Foundation helped Lee get training to become a counselor himself. In Evanston, where he wound up working, he found he could really connect with the clients who, like him, had served time. Overall, though, few seemed to care about them. We, you know, we kind of stuck on stupid here with that, with that population. And unfortunately, um, many of them are living, you know, uh, almost on a day-to-day survival mode. That's Howard Saffold, a veteran community activist and retired police officer in Chicago. He launched a number of organizations to address recidivism. They all died due to a lack of funding. The funding issue is a real one, but Benny Lee says he couldn't wait for the system to figure itself out. He'd gotten certified as a substance abuse counselor, and he decided to expand his practice informally to ex-inmates. He hit up local churches to donate chairs and space. Yeah, the reentry circle is a, like a support circle for former incarcerated and convicted people, and even their families, to come and talk about some of the issues they're struggling with, some of the barriers they face with 
upon discharge and trying to seek employment or housing or some type of assistance, we look at a strategy, how to take action so a person can meet their goals. Whip your hand and my hand together with me. This is the group recitation which closes Benny Lee's Saturday morning reentry circle meeting, held in his offices in Chicago's Austin neighborhood. It's a mantra which symbolizes the support network within the group. I've sat in on a lot of these circles, and I'm always struck by the stories the ex-offenders tell and the connections they make. By me having a support network a group of guys that I can come and relate to about the burials and a lot of stuff I was facing just for me having an X on my back. I was able to get around it because these guys that was mentoring me, they was giving me some tough love, saying, man, you got to hang in there, man. Man, you got to stay the course. That's Ernest Roberts, a burly 54-year-old man who says he was in prison 11 different times. Now he assists Benny Lee in these meetings. I met a guy whose street name is Booney Mac. His real name's Clifton McFowler. He did almost 28 years in prison for first-degree murder. And he's another former vice lord, someone who knew Benny back in his criminal days. McFowler's now another regular in the reentry circles, and he's also a patient mentor for people who need a lot of basic assistance. I, I never had a driver's license. I never had a state identification card. I never had a social security card, none of that. It's just minor things to everybody else, but to a criminal or ex-offender, those things are essential. So now I got it. This is my first step in becoming a productive citizen. The ex-inmates talk about facing discrimination in job interviews, enduring endless background checks, and more. But through it all, Benny Lee is here for them. And his reentry circle model, based on little more than donated space and some flyers, is spreading around Chicago and beyond. Of course, recidivism doesn't just affect Chicago or other large urban areas. It's a national issue. The Bureau of Justice Studies recently tracked roughly 400,000 ex-prisoners released in 30 states. And the results show that within six months of their release, more than 30% of these individuals were back in prison. That number rose to nearly 60% by the end of their first year out. And after five years, almost 80% of them were behind bars again. Victor Dixon is someone who knows how much attention we should be paying to the issue of recidivism. Even if, well, we're not. He runs the Safer Foundation in Chicago. And as he told me when I interviewed him recently, he knows Benny Lee's work well. I think that Benny, uh, his program is very beneficial and is very necessary. Having kind of a support group uh, for individuals coming out uh, is, is extremely important. But beyond that, they still have to get access to the very hard and tangible resources that they need. So coming out of that group, they still need uh, substance treatment. They still need housing support, training, and job placement services all of the kind of things that are really critical for them to uh, really get their life back on track. So it sounds like his group lays kind of an emotional foundation. It helps people get maybe their confidence back, their, their self-concept, their identity. Yeah, that's really critical. Um, a cousin of mine just recently was released from prison after 20 years, and he happens to uh, now be a Safer Foundation client. Uh, he was just telling me the other day that he got, he finally got his driver's license and went driving for the first time, and it just freaked him out. You know, there's a lot more traffic. 
things are a whole lot different than they used to be. Um, and so, you know, those kind of emotional supports are very important to help people adjust. But beyond the emotional support, again, they need place to go where they can get the tangible resources. There's so many different barriers. What are some of the biggest well, the, the biggest barrier is, is employment. I mean, if we think about the, the fact that if a person, uh, because of their record, is precluded from uh, gainful employment, then what is the alternative? I mean, you know, you, any of us can ask ourselves if we weren't able to earn a living then uh, in, in a legal way, then what alternative do we have? We essentially drive people to do things that really put them right back into the justice system. And that's the cycle that we have to find a way to break. So you're talking with us right now from your office in Chicago. In terms of ex-offenders in that city, are there any particular barriers we see in the city? Well, in, in the city of Chicago is probably not a lot different than, than other cities. When people are released from prison, for example, they usually have maybe $20, you know, and that's about it a bus pass or a train pass to get back home. They may have their, their clothes that they were issued upon release from prison. Um, and that's it. Um, here in, in our state, there are over 100 occupations where people can't even uh, get a license because of their criminal record. You can learn how to be a barber in prison and get very experienced and skilled at it while you're institutionalized. But when you release, you can't get a license in Illinois to be a barber that doesn't make any sense at all. And that's the kind of a situation that people re-entering face. Victor, I want to zoom out a little bit. Right now we have this national conversation going on about law enforcement and race. And so I want to ask you, where do the stories of ex-offenders fit into all of this? Well, you know, all of these things are certainly interconnected. I mean, you know, we, we have a a bigger issue, I would say, that goes back <clears throat> even further, and it has to do with the lack of investment that we've had in, in urban communities. Uh, we tend to be afraid of people. We don't realize that most of the people who are incarcerated and have records are nonviolent people that have been caught up in the justice system because of some low-level nonviolent offense, some drug offense that may have happened in their youth. And then for the rest of their life, they're stuck with the label that prevents uh, them from securing employment and, and creates fear in the minds of other people. Challenging uh, each other to, to deal with those irrational fears is something that we have to do. Our story from Chicago today was reported by John Owens. Placemakers is a production of Slate Magazine and is produced by Mia Lobel, Diana Douglas, and Michael Volo, and edited by Julia Barton. Our researcher is Matthew Schwartz. Eric Shimalonis does our mixing and musical scoring. Our theme was composed by Robin Hilton. Steve Lichtai is our executive producer. I'm Rebecca Shear. For more information about today's show and other episodes of Placemakers, go to slate.com slash placemakers. You can drop us a line at placemakers at slate.com. You can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at Slate Placemaker. And if you like what you're hearing, please give us a review or rating on iTunes. It really does help. Hi. 
coming up next time on Placemakers. You see them in cities across the world, municipal bike shares. But these bike rental programs often present barriers for the people that rely on public transit the most. I may think $100 up front is a very large commitment to make as a person who has a family, who makes an hourly wage that makes it difficult for me to even pay my bills from month to month sometimes. But if I have a monthly option like a cell phone, I will entertain the thought of being able to use bike share however I see fit. We'll hear how the city of Philadelphia is making bike share more accessible and more diverse, two wheels at a time. Hey guys, yep, I'm still here. Those of you still around, I want to ask you a small favor. Here at Placemakers, we want to learn more about you, our listeners, and your opinions. We know you guys have strong opinions, so we created a quick survey that we'd love for you to take. If you fill it out, you'll automatically be entered for a chance to win a $150 Amazon gift card. And you'll be helping us continue to create content that makes your ears and your brain happy. To fill out the survey, go to slate.com slash survey2. That's slate.com slash survey2. Thank you.